Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. When I was praying about how to address um, the different crises that we are facing, not only in the church, but in, in the whole world during this season, the first thing that, that really got impressed on my mind was Paul's writing in Ephesians where he talks about God's blueprint. And he's talking about how God has a blueprint for fullness, which therefore includes a, a blueprint for renewal. That whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, there's a tendency even for good things to plateau or for good things to become stagnant. And when stagnation sets in, decline is in, inevitable. A decline that we might see in terms of morality, a decline you might see in terms of spiritual fervor, a decline you might see in terms of justice and an advance of injustice even. But the the options when you come to decline, and especially depending on how desperate the people become, particularly how desperate the church becomes to arrest the decline, are either to, in a way, allow the stagnation and the decline to continue, which leads to death, or to say, no, this is not the blueprint of God. This is not the plan of God. He is not calling us into death, but into life. And if there's going to be a reversal of the momentum of decline, then there has to be a blueprint for renewal. And in order for there to really be renewal, there has to be some form of resistance against the status quo, some healthy discontent with the status quo. Without that, we will just slip into more and more decline. So there has to be a resistance, but... In order for the deeper spiritual evils that manifest, the deep-rooted systems of injustice or the deep-rooted issues of human need even not being met, there has to be more than just a temporary attention given. There has to be resilience. This has to be a, a slow and patient passion as well as a, a fervent passion. So we have to begin to look at the scriptures, I believe, to understand the patterns of God, of how he provides in times of crisis. So I want to go back to one of the, really the biblical ideas of renewal, the biblical theological basis for revival, that where there once was life, there can be life again. Where there once was health, there can be health again. So we look at one of the, the passages that many people who love the moves of God love to use this passage because it's a, it's a picture of what we need today. It's Genesis chapter 26. And I'll just read verses 17 and 18, though the story itself will unpack. So Isaac, that's the son of Abraham, Isaac departed from being among the Philistines, and he encamped in the valley of Gerar. 
and he settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So what we see here in this biblical narrative is that Isaac, one of the patriarchs of the people of God, had been living in another part of the country. And when he was in this, this part, in this region of the Philistines, the blessing and the favor of God had been on him in a very striking manner. But he became so wealthy and he became so powerful that the leader of the Philistines began to look upon him with envy and saw him as a threat. And so he forced Isaac and all his, his family and all those that were with him and all his, his, his wealth and livestock, everything they had, he forced them to move. So we see here in this story, we see two tribal leaders, Abimelech and Isaac. And though they're in the same region and they're in the same territory, there's a, a strong distrust that takes place between the two of them. So he had to leave, Isaac did, and he had to come to this valley of Gerar. And there's where he decides, I'm going to live here, I'm going to dwell here. But the problem is that, and especially if you go into the land of Palestine, you'll realize pretty quickly that water is not only essential to life, but water is not easy to find. And so Isaac isn't confronted with the idea of where can I put you know, my, my tent in some beautiful spot so I have a great view. He's not thinking here, how do I, how do I have a life of luxury? How do I have a life of entertainment? He's not dealing with the accessories of life. He's dealing with life itself. Because without water, there will be no life. And not only is he looking for water for himself, but he's looking for water for his family. He's looking for water for his crops, for his livestock, for all that he possesses. So he has a huge responsibility and he has a desperate need. So the story here is, Isaac was looking for something essential, something without which life cannot be maintained. The way that many who talk about God's awakenings or his revivals or his renewals is that they look at this situation that Isaac said, had, and they say, don't you see this is where we are? Do you not understand that where we are is we are desperate, not for the accessories of life, not for the entertainments of life, not to just have a better view for our tents to be pitched. But really what we're desperate for is life itself. And the fact that it is life itself makes it urgent. When God shows us how helpless we are, when God shows us how needy we are, he's not doing it to embarrass us. He's doing it to get us to focus on the fact that what we need is life itself. So what happens in the midst of this and what needs to catch our attention is that this problem is, is not a problem of finding better methods or being more organized. It's not merely a, an adjustment here or there. 
It's not improving or doing more of what we've done in the past or, or even trying to update and keep everything up to, updated. What, what Isaac knew is he, he had to find life itself. He had to find the source of life itself. And what we need to understand as a church, what we need to understand in our day is this is a basic issue. We need life. We need life in our own personal lives, and we need life in our church. So part of it, at least my challenge to you, is how is it that you define life? Do you define life in a biblical way, or do you define life in a worldly way? I believe that we can go to the Apostle Paul, because he liked to talk about his definition of life. And why his definition is so relevant to us is because his circumstances were so desperate. His circumstances were so difficult. We've been studying Philippians and Paul's letter from the prison, and we, we recognize as he writes this letter and as he defines his life, his circumstances cannot be what is defining life for him. Because the circumstances are that he's chained to a Roman guard, a Praetorian guard, all day, every day. They do it in shifts. But he does not have a minute to himself. He is never more than a chain away from a guard. And you can imagine, if you have to live your life with no privacy, never being away from, from a government official who is there to watch over you and to control you and to govern you, you can imagine how demeaning, how demoralizing, how even dehumanizing such a circumstance. But not only that, he had this circumstance that he was facing, but Paul was the greatest church planter that has ever lived. His career was taking off. He could go into any city in the known world and within a very short amount of time establish a life-giving church appoint leaders and pastors over that church and see a city and a region transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his presence, and now his career is ended. His career is cut off. And he is facing, as he writes to the Philippian church, he's facing the possibility that not only is his career ended, but his life might end, that execution is possible. And yet Paul defines his life not according to those circumstances. He defines his life in a way that he says, whether I live or die, I am not in despair. Even though his circumstances look de demeaning, demoralizing, dehumanizing, he says, I have triumphed. Why is that? Well, it's because his definition of life enables him to face anything. See, and, and what I'm saying to you is the way you define life and the way that you're looking for life will have everything to do with whether you stand under difficult circumstances or you fall under those. And that has to do with this. What is it when you say, this is the most important thing for me, when you say what life is all about, is it what Paul said his life was about? And here's what he says. In Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ. That's his definition of life. For me to live 
is Christ. He's basically saying, if I have Christ, if I have the life of Christ, if Christ is the source of my life, then I have life no matter what my circumstances are. And what you have to ask yourself the question, and this is where our need for renewal and our need to step into the blueprint of God's renewal work is, do the tragedies that you face, do the troubles that come your way, do they take away your life? Now, we could go into all kinds of philosophy about how others define life, but most of us are not that consciously philosophical. But if your family is touched, have you lost your life? If your health is failing, have you lost your life? If you no longer can be successful or if your career isn't going the way you want or if there's anything you say, I have to have this, then you have a choice, you see, of looking and saying, well, that's really how I'm defining my life. For me to live is my family. For me to live is my job. For me to live is my health, my good looks, or my house, or my possessions. See, if that's your definition, then either you're going to collapse under the weight and the faulty substance of that definition, or you're going to convert. See, Paul's career collapsed, but because he was really converted to life in Christ and the life of Christ, though his career collapsed, his life did not collapse. Why is it that any of us, like the Apostle Paul, would decide that we would define life this way? Because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to escape troubles. It doesn't mean you're going to avoid trouble or difficult or tragedies. Apparently, as we go through COVID-19, it doesn't seem to be much of a respecter of persons or age or, or careers or anything else. So how is it that I can say with Paul, for me to live is my definition of life. Well, for me, it all comes down to John 17 and the way that Jesus defined life. In that, as he's speaking to his father and he's about to give his life on the cross for us, he says, I sanctify myself. And he's saying he's sanctifying or he's giving himself fully and totally for you for your life, for your happiness, for your greatness, for eternity. Basically what Jesus is saying in the prayer that he prays to his Father, he says, for me to live is Mike. For me to live is Isaiah. For me to live is any, you put your name in here. Because that's what he's saying in John 17. You see, Paul wasn't the first one to say, for me to live is Christ. Christ said, for me to live is Paul. And so, what's he saying there? Well, he's backing it up with the cross. He's backing it up by becoming sin for us. He's backing it up by becoming the curse for us. But basically what he's saying in that is, I am willing to do anything for you to be with me. He defines life as life with you. And Paul is saying that that has so captivated him that now he defines life as being with Christ. That's what I'm asking of each of you. I, I don't think renewal can start if Christ is in your life, but not your life. I don't think renewal can really start. I don't think you're really desperate for water yet. 
until you say, then Jesus, for me to live is you. And since I have you in my life, nothing can take my life away from me. Well, that means that as a church, that as a society, we really are in the position of Isaac. We, we have settled in a place where life, where water, is not easy to find. So we're saying here, and what we're saying in this series is we are confronted with the need, not just for ourselves, but our church, for our community, to actually discover life itself. And what we're really talking about is that fundamental power and energy that in every activity of you as a believer or every activity of us as a church, that we could really make an impact on the world. We're not just trying to be safe from bad circumstances or negative experiences, friend. We are so wanting to make Christ our life that our church, our activity, our energy makes an impact on the world. That what we're doing is vital. That what we're doing is drastic in regard to the whole trend that we see of decline, of death at this present time. All I'm saying is, like Isaac, we need life and we need power. And we need the water, which the, the scriptures say the water that we need is the Holy Spirit himself. So what did Isaac do? He didn't call out engineers. He didn't call out professionals. He didn't, he didn't go find consultants. He went back to the wells of his father. You know, he needed water quickly. He didn't need to experiment with something new or something, you know, that might not work. He needed water quickly or his family would die. There was an urgency. And you know what he needed? He needed a guaranteed supply. He needed a source that was not iffy, but continuous. He needed a source of pure water, of known life. I've been a pastor since 1983, and it's interesting how in every season of my life I've heard people talking like we have problems that are so new and so unique. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't living, and every time, every time a, a church faces a new season, there, it has to be acknowledged what's new about it or what's different about it. There is a difference in this season. There's never been such a, a large group or a society or culture that is as post-Christian as ours is, that's inoculated in, in a sense with antibodies against Christianity. But at the same time, it is not for us to give up or to give in to the idea of hopelessness or helplessness, when the reality is that our God is the same in every generation. That the Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom and, and who brought it forth with power, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who taught with authority, that that same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, that we cannot be those who think that the, that, that the wells of our fathers, 
are not sufficient for today because our God is the same. But not only that, if you look at our problems closely, they're still the same. Here's an Old Testament narrative. There are two different tribes. At first, there's some semblance of cooperation, but even as they're cooperating, they're lying to each other, there's suspicion, there's jealousy, there's fear. Isaac fears Abimelech. He fears Abimelech's power. He fears what Abimelech might do. So Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was a good-looking woman. So Isaac says, she's my sister. Well, if you know anything about Old Testament scripture, that's exactly what Abraham did with his wife, Sarah. Here's a generational sin going down to the next generation. Different people, same sin. And so Abimelech finds out that Rebekah is not Isaac's sister. She's his wife, and he's furious. And trust is broken. Then Isaac even though he's somewhat of a scoundrel here, is favored by God and blessed by God, gets rich and powerful. And Abimelech looks and says, I can't trust this guy. Now, he is filled with jealousy. He wants what, he wants what Isaac has. So the only way for them to uh, continue is to separate, is to divide. And so it's interesting that you begin to see that here in the scriptures, and it's why I love the Bible, is it's so honest even about our heroes that there's this scoundrel character and there's distrust and there's sin that shows up and yet in the grace of God, because it's unmerited favor, God is bringing his favor on Isaac through whom the Messiah will come would come. Now, you might say to me, well, you know, we live in such a technologically advanced time, so much different than those times that nobody could possibly be interested in God. Do you understand that in every season, the people who got revived, the people who were renewed, the people who were awakened were far from God, even those who went to church. They were asleep. You say, but they don't have the entertainments. Do you understand? The human being and the human family have been able to find entertainments to distract them from God for all eternity. If it's not a TV or a phone, it was cards or it was dice or it was whatever. Because hell and the devil have always been after the human race and to keep us from any hunger for God and for any interest in spiritual things. But not only that, but every time that the, the spirit really moves in a generation, there's a, there's a common or there are common characteristics to the way that he moves. One of the first ones is this, is that you'll see when you read about great revivals or great awakenings, you will see that they, they go back and they, they, they find something in the book of Acts that is there that's missing in that generation or that's missing in terms of their understanding of the gospel or their understanding. And so although it's an old thing, it was there in the first century, it becomes a new thing in the current situations. And what it is usually, it is a recovery of the purity of the gospel, 
Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. See, the default setting of every human heart is to save itself, is self-salvation. And the default setting of every human heart is to believe or to work in such a way that my own righteousness is sufficient, kind of a self-righteousness. It doesn't matter if you're conservative in your views or you're liberal in your views. Our default setting is self-salvation strategies and self-righteousness. And what revival does, it, 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 it always revi- re, uh, it is around and revolves around this a life that is sourced then by a rediscovery of the wonder of grace, of recognizing there is none, none righteous, no, not one. There's no righteous in me that makes me acceptable to God, but rather that, that wonder that God takes sinners and makes us righteous, that God saves sinners and then calls us righteous and causes his own children. You see, usually... Life is found again in the church and even in the community when we start to realize it's not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. And we get the, the full effect of Christ's accomplishment of salvation on our behalf. See, that's radically different from religion. Religion is what, it, what are you going to do for God? Salvation in Christianity is what has God done for you and have you received it? Have you accepted it? Do you realize that by faith he has given you his righteousness? He has died in your place. And therefore, by faith, when you come in faith to Christ, you are made accepted, fully accepted by God and acceptable to God. When that is discovered, when that old truth becomes a new reality, there's life and there's a movement of God's grace and God's spirit. But what I've found too is that one of the definitions I like of revival or renewal is this, is you begin to see extraordinary results of the Holy Spirit in answer to extraordinary hunger and extraordinary prayer. This is why I'm using the the image here of Isaac. He was desperate to find the water, and the water meant life. I'm desperate, not just for myself or for my family. I'm desperate for my church. I'm desperate for my community to find water. I don't want ordinary results. I want extraordinary results. I want extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit that produce extraordinary works and results that that can only be explained because he's answering our prayer, because he's moving sovereignly in our midst. See, I, I like this. There's always, when we really drink deeply of the Spirit, There's extraordinary kingdom-centered prevailing prayer that breaks down the ordinary walls that divide Christians. But also this, it's interesting, is there's always creativity every time that God begins to do a new thing. And it's usually the people who were part of the last move of God who are the opposition. Is that by saying, well, there's a formula for how God has to renew his people, or there's a, for, there's a method to how God, 
And, and because God is a creative God and because the move of the Spirit is always based in his creativity, whatever he does and whatever he wants to do now will not look like what he's done in the past. It will be a new thing. So it, it can be confusing at times because he takes the old truth and he makes it feel like it's brand new. But he does what he's always done. He brings life. He brings water to the thirsty. But he does it in a completely new way. And we can either get in the way of it or we can drink from it. Now, there will be opposition. There has never not been opposition to a move of God. Again, pictured in Isaac's Redigging the wells of his father. You see, the, the Philistines had stopped and filled up the, the, the wells with dirt. They had put all kinds of stuff in there. There was pure water there, but there was also all these obstacles. There was resistance to digging the wells, to getting to the water. So when you realize that what you want and what you need, if you're desperate for, you also have to realize there's going to be resistance. There are going to be obstacles, and there's going to be active resistance. Isaac actually had to contend for the wells of his, fathers, of his father. Others had decided they were, it was their land, it was their water, it was their wells, and they weren't going to let Isaac have them. And there's this one story where on the last well that he redug, he named it Rehoboth. And he called it Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Am I wrong to ask, ask you to find that hunger, that desperation that the Lord would make room for us in this generation, that we would be a Rehoboth generation. We would be a Rehoboth church that we would be fruitful in the land. Do you not see what we were talking about earlier is that we don't want the energy, we don't want the, the spiritual activity to be for nothing. We want it to produce extraordinary results where walls come down, where people are set free, where the whole community is fruitful and blessed. Well, I think you have to ask the question then, what are the wells of our fathers? Well, if we're going to redig the wells of our fathers, what are the wells of our fathers? And some people will go back to certain historical moments and they'll say, well, you know, particularly those of us who are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, we'll go back to the early days of the Alliance and we'll go back to A.B. Simpson. I don't think that well is deep enough. I don't think that is enough water in that well for what we need today. I don't think there's anything within our last 500 years that is enough, not the Reformation, not the Great Awakening, friends. We need something that is really the source and will do what we need it to do. And I think the only thing that's deep enough, I think the only well that's deep enough is Pentecost. In Acts chapter 1, and, I, and I'm going to explain why, okay? Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, he, look what it says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but, for, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
And then he says to him, here's the promise of the Father. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2, but he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, why am I saying that we have to go all the way back to Pentecost, all the way back to this well? Because it's the well where we don't have a forced unity in the church. It's not a well where there's a, an appearance of unity. It's a well where diversity is affirmed. Even while all our sinful divisions, whether it's race, ethnicity, wealth, or poverty, whatever the, whatever the educated versus uneducated, all of those sinful divisions were overcome at Pentecost. Notice what it says in Acts 2, Verse 1, it says, they were all together in one place. Now, some people will interpret that and say, well, it just means they were geographically together. But, but Luke uses this word that's translated all together numerous times. And it's actually a word about being in one accord. It's about being of one heart, of one mind. You can't force people to be of one mind and of one heart. So what we see is that the upper room became a place of unity, not of conformity. It was unity in the midst of diversity, and it was a place of promise. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father will come upon you in power. And they were in that upper room because they wanted to be there, not because they had to be there. Now, I've often heard it said, and, and, and I was thinking about this with Pentecost being last week. I've often heard it said that, that Pentecost is the reversal of the curse at Babel. And it, 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 I've never quite understood or thought, you know, well, let's, let's figure out what that means. And I think we have to understand Babel where the people were divided up into language and families and tribes and cultures. And what you have to understand is what was going on in Babel? What was, what was happening there? And if you study it carefully, you'll realize that Babel was a forced unity. And the, the emotion of that unity was fear. They are afraid of what's about to happen to them. And... There is no way you build a tower without slave labor in the, old, in, in the ancient days. So not only was there fear, but there was oppression. And the oppression was bringing about a, a forced unity. Now, you could very clearly say there's a pride here because they want to make a name for themselves that's bigger than God. Okay, So certainly there's a pride there, but the actual actions and the activities there are both fear-based and oppression causing this kind of unity. And the fear was this. They wanted to keep the security that they had. They did not want to be scattered over the face of the earth. They were afraid of what they were going to lose. And in this sinful unity, God scattered them. And so what we see is, in the upper room, God gathers the nations. God gathers the cultures. And he does so in unity. And as he visits the upper room, here's the description. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
divided tongues as a fire appeared, rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. See, if you look at this closely, you'll realize that the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost is not overcoming a curse of diversity. It's not even overcoming the idea uh, or, or the reality of many languages and, and many cultures. Rather, what is overcome here is a forced kind of unity that springs from human sin. For we see at Pentecost that everybody hears in their own language. They are not suddenly all speaking English or all speaking Spanish or all speaking Chinese. They're each hearing the gospel. They're hearing God's voice in their own language. See, what Pentecost does is that the divisions that are caused by fear of one another and fear of God, and fear of losing our security, and fear of losing our place, and any kind of panicked sort of prejudice that we have against people who don't look like us or don't sound like us, at Pentecost, that's overcome. And what we see is that as the gospel is preached, it's preached in such a way that the diversity of culture and the beauty of culture and the beauty of every, every tongue, every tribe is affirmed while the sinful divisions are overcome. Luke says it again in Acts 2.44 as he describes the church. He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So he's already described the, the myriad of cultures that were in Jerusalem. He's already described the number of languages that were expressed at Pentecost. And as they came together, they didn't come together in a forced unity. They didn't come together in a conformity. They came together in beautiful diversity. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to. And they opened up the walls and they opened up their hearts to one another. Let me close with this quote. This one made a lot of sense to me. More than once the church has been in danger of being split, but the Spirit has always brought the church together. The world tends to disrupt, divide, and build barriers. The Holy Spirit broke down barriers as the church prayed together, worked together, evangelized together, suffered together. Nature tends to disperse, scatter, and break down. It takes a higher energy to unite, more wisdom and power to build up than to tear down. So here's this important theme that begins at Pentecost, that through the Holy Church, through the Holy Spirit, church is being built, one body in diversity. He, Luke draws to attention every time to how they were all together. There was this one accord. What a contrast that is to even the jealousy that you saw among the disciples before the cross where, where one disciple after another was saying, will I be the greatest? Am I the greatest? Jesus dealt with all that competition, all that jealousy between believers 
these disciples after the resurrection, especially to Peter, when he was restored and recommissioned, his heart no longer harbored conflict with the other brothers, no longer jealousy. Here on Pentecost and in the church, these who were divided in mind are now united in mind. Together, one accord, one, one purpose. This is Luke's favorite concept when he describes the Holy Spirit and the life of the church. Being united in one accord with one purpose is surely still an important key to seeing the impact that God wants to use us for in this day. This is what us being a fellowship, being a community of believers is all about. When you receive this today, will you recognize that you have to define your life like Paul did for me to live as Christ. And you can do that because Jesus said, for me to live as you. But we got to redig these old wells. We got to go all the way back to the real source of our life, the pure water, where our divisions are no longer our divisions, but we're together in one accord with all things in common. Not because we have to, but because that's who we are in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, please don't let... It feels like a, a, a simple prayer, but I just don't want these sorrows. I don't want these troubles, this season of mourning, this season of helplessness, this season of, of difficult and tragedies in our life. I don't want them to be wasted. Or don't let this just slide from decline into death. We open up our hearts right now to dig again the wells of our fathers, to dig in the well of the promised of the Father, the Spirit of Christ. Spirit, come into this divisive world. Spirit, come into our divisive lives. Come into the places where we have jealousies and we have anger and we have fear, where we have prejudice. Come, Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.